Good day, folks. This is Shane Hastie for the InfoQ Culture Podcast. I'm at the Business Agility Conference in Sydney, Australia, and privileged to sit down with Phil Abernathy. Phil, hi. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us today. How are you doing, Shane? It's been a long time. It has been a long time. Fantastic to talk to you. Now, you and I know each other well for many years, but our audience probably doesn't know a lot about you. So tell us the two-minute overview of who's Phil Abernathy. Well, I've been in the business of IT originally for around 30 years and then in the last 15 uh, working in the agile space and the last 12 focusing mainly on agile transformations, helping companies to get better, faster, cheaper and happier. Mm-hmm. And that's really the focus. Better, faster, cheaper, happier. happier. So it's happier customers, happier employees and happier shareholders. And I really believe what Richard Branson said, which is if you want happier customers, you've got to have happier employees because it's your employees that touch the customers. So that's been a big driver for me. And today I see so many of these customer journeys and focus on the customer, and they tend to take away the focus on the employee. And yeah, that's also looked at, but let's focus on the customer. Mm-hmm. And I think Richard got it really right. And Virgin has such excellent customer focus because he focuses on his employees predominantly. But to say something like that, that I focus on my employees more than my customers, is almost sacrilege today. It is. Yeah. So, and that's what I think great companies are starting to realize, that in order to attract great talent, you have to have a great place to work. So what's it mean to be a great place to work? Is it foosball tables and free food? No, I don't think it's that. I think, you know, Dan Pink put it very well. It's the first thing being, I call it just simply PAM. So purpose, having a clear sense of what are you trying to do, which is more altruistic than financial, yeah? That they have autonomy within their area of work. So there's no real minutiae, command and control, micromanagement going on. And they're able to learn and mastery. That's the last thing. So they have mastery. Now, there is one that's creeped in over the years that I've kind of added to that list, and that is fairness. I have seen so many great teams just be destroyed because of favoritism of management. They support three people, and it may not be very obvious, it's just simple things like having lunch with just this person every day and not inviting the other people. Or it may be taking somebody to an offsite or to conferences, only these two people and not the rest. And it has such a detrimental effect on team spirit, team morale. I think that's an important one as well for employees to have a sense of belonging and being treated fairly. Mm -hmm. So I like to add that one to Pam. Is fair equal? No, definitely not. Definitely not. So I think people are very mature to realize that equality is not what they're striving for, that it's not everyone is equal. There's capability differences, there's maturity differences, there's experience differences, and people are quite okay with that. There's even salary differences. There's no problem with that. But treat me fairly. At the conference here, you gave a talk on structuring the business for agility. And you focused on one area you spent time on and one that you you touched on. Ran short of time. (laughs) Yeah, they did almost march you off the stage. Your 20 (laughs) minutes was up. (laughs) But it was about the organizational structures and the work structures. So we got a bit more time. So let's explore this together. So if you look at org structures, and I'd like to go back to Conway's principle, which was something in 1960 that he came up with. So nothing that new. 
which talked about how if you have complex systems and complex processes, the root cause is complex structures. And you can only have as simple a process or a system as your structure. And if you look at what's been happening in the recent past, in years, let's the last 15 years, I would say, from around the 2000, is this proliferation of KPI-style management, which if you've got something that's not working, you put a vice president on it and drive it. So if service is not working, you have a head of service. If gross margin is not working, there's a head of gross margin. If innovation is a problem, you have a head of innovation. Now it's digital, yet digital is now the head of in digital. What's the difference between the IT department and digital? Nobody can explain that to me, because there's a digital department and there's an IT department. The whole of IT is digital. And this sort of uh, convoluted obfuscation of accountability and responsibility is at the heart of complex structures. So for me, a very important part to achieve true agility, and if you look at the great companies, just copy what the great ones are doing. They have small, simple teams, even five people, yeah, delivering a service to a direct customer group. It can be internal customer or external customer, it doesn't matter. That's it. They're empowered, they have leadership, there is a hierarchy. Nobody's saying no hierarchy. And people confuse the word empowered and self-directed with no management, no leadership, no direction, which is totally not true. So simple org structures built bottom up, so built the teams based on the service and the customer. Small teams, loosely coupled, tightly aligned to a set of purposes and then layer your management structure flat as possible on top of that. Whereas today's model is, I have seven senior leaders because if I have less than that, my job may be at stake. So let's make it eight leaders and now I have to find the teams under the eight leaders. And spans of control in companies that I've worked with today are ranging from two to six, eight. It's amazing that old norm of seven is even gone. And the better companies are working with 15 between 10 and 20, some are pushing for, depending on the type of work, of course, and the maturity of the leader. Mm -hmm. But under 10, I would say that's too low a span of control. And if you have, on average, I talked about the organizational BMI metric, mm -hmm. yep. so the bureaucracy mass index, that I like to call it. It's a calculation of enablers to doers as a ratio. And you'll see there that what we've calculated from experience of what works is roughly around 10%. So between 8 and 12 mm -hmm. is an acceptable number. Most companies I go into, large corporates, you're talking 500 plus, 1,000 plus people upwards. You're looking at BMIs ranging from 20 to 45. The largest I've seen is 45. So that's 45 yeah. manager type role. No, no, it's a ratio. So it's 45% mm -hmm. mm -hmm. is the enablers to the total. So let's say you've got six doers, the people who actually do the work, yeah, and four enablers. So there's are managers. Let's say managers for now, yeah. So that's a total of ten people, out of which four are managers, yeah. So the BMI there would be forty percent. You need just one, which is ten percent mm -hmm. for ten people. What that's do you do with the other three? That's the good question. So now. With most companies, saying let them go is almost taboo because, oh my God, we can't do that. I don't know why, but okay. The other thing is that you don't have to let them go because you have to find productive work for them. That is the question.
So maybe a lot of them are individual contributors who can actually do work. Maybe some of them are good in other functions in different areas. And at the end of the day, you don't run a company just to employ additional people. You run a company to create value for your customers, your employees, and your shareholders. And that creation of value is what has to be balanced with what's best for the people as well. So this BMI is just an indicator. It's mm. just a signal. That's mm -hmm. all. Like any measure, it's a signal. It's a, it's a guide. It's not black and white. But it does provide a level of measure as to the amount of fat in your system. Mm -hmm. It's a tough message, but it's a message for happiness, which is a strange one to say, yeah, you want happier customers, happier employees, and happier managers, because they also are employees and people working in the company, because the other way does not set the system up for success, Shane. So flatten the structures. Consistent expanded spans of control, you know, 10 to 15, as flat as possible. And you've got small cross-functional teams mm -hmm. that are dedicated, preferably co-located, pulling work from a single funnel of work mm -hmm. that has been prioritized. That brings us to the second bit. Structure the work. How do you structure the work? Now, most companies that I work with are overloaded. Mm -hmm. Too much going on at the same time, multiple projects, multiple initiatives. I'm snowed under people drowning in work. And the reason for the lack of prioritization is not decision-making, but the lack of clarity, I've noticed. Mm -hmm. So the lack of strategic clarity. So there's a digital strategy. There's an innovation strategy. There's an IT transformation strategy. There's a separate IT strategy. Then there's a business strategy. And how the hell are you to figure out what is your real strategy? So the simple strategy that you can explain in three to five bullet points mm -hmm. does not exist in many places. Yeah? So John Doe in his book, Measure What Matters, has been, you know, done a wondrous job of capturing and explaining the concept of OKRs or objectives and key results that Andy Grove developed together with him, I think, in Intel, and then it's come down and Google use it and Facebook use it and all the Amazon use it. All the big companies have some form of OKRs, which is a very simple, what are my top three to five objectives? And each objective has between one to three key results, which are smart. That means specific, measurable, actionable, realistic, and time-bound. Mm -hmm. And that's it. And then you cascade that down. So the key results of the level above become the objectives of the level below. And then they work out their key results. And how are they going to achieve those key results? And then they take it down. And it's collaboratively developed. It's not communicated. It's collaboratively developed and brought out. And that entire process is so difficult, yet it is simple because we've been schooled in other ways. And the companies that get this right, they don't have a prioritization problem. They're focusing on three things. I do a little test, Shane. Mm -hmm. I give the senior leadership team a piece of paper and I say, write down the top three objectives for this quarter. The top three things we need to do in this quarter. In the group of 10, do you think I'd get even two things that are similar? In many organizations, no. Correct. They struggle with it, yeah? Mm -hmm. And that's nothing to say. It doesn't mean that the people are not capable. It doesn't mean that there's poor management. No, it just means that you don't have the clarity, the lack of clarity. And getting that is part of this journey. So structure the org, structure the work, and then you can add to that what I call style. Mm 
which is leadership style. This is the cultural piece, the softer pieces, the piece about how you treat people, how you treat, what sort of values and principles you allow. So just the structure by itself is not enough. You need the style part as well, which is so crucial. But many people now work on cultural transformations and tell you, don't touch my structure because that's HR or the senior leadership's job. And some people work on just the structure and say, uh-uh, that, that soft culture thing, I don't know, I want, I want outcomes. But you can get outcomes with culture too. So, yeah, it's a beautiful journey when you mix the two. So what does a good style look like? First off, I'd like to say that it has to be based on an agreed set of values. So what is the organizational values? These are human values. You know, trust, respect, transparency or openness. Do you value courage? Yeah? Do you value experimentation and speaking out? Yeah? Do you allow people to do that? But every organization says they do this. That's right but they don't practice it. So now comes the second piece. And that is the difference. What is on the poster is not what is lived. So why? Why is it that the values you espouse is not the values that you see on the ground? Yeah. And of course, that's where the whole issue of holding people accountable come in. And if you remember Patrick Lencioni's work, he talks about trust being the foundation. Mm But if you don't have trust, you will have fake harmony. You will not have conflict. Conflict is actually a signal of good trust. Yeah? Because you have fake harmony because you don't have vulnerability. If you have fake harmony, you don't have accountability. You don't have accountability, you don't have results. So it builds up. So as I said, you know, if you look at an organization on the softer side, you're looking at leadership that does trust that does believe in experimentation, trial and error, where trying something is not failure. Yeah? At the same time, in all these companies that also allow that to happen, I find that the courage of senior leadership to call people out for breaking the values is the decider. I go to some organization chain and they ask me, yeah, you know, we have to do an assessment. So do you know where the problem is? Do you know who is the problem? After a bit of mm-mm, they all say, yeah, we know where the problem is. Senior management knows where the problem is. So why haven't you done something about it? And therein lies the solution. The courage to take strong, hard decisions when people do not follow the values agreed by everyone. It's not a dictatorial value system. You come up with the values that you want as your company. So take Uber, for example. If you look at the the mess they've been in, in terms of values, over the years. Yeah? Maybe they were chasing money. I don't know. Yeah? But they got into a lot of difficulty with a lot of negative press and lots of attrition. Not a great place to work because the top-down leadership did not hold people accountable. And culture is always top-down. It's not bottom-up. So getting that cultural, let's say, support from the top where people walk the talk I love the Australian general who said, your values are the ones you walk past. For me, that is one sentence that covers everything to do with culture in a company. Senior leadership believe we follow good values, but if they see the values being broken, they don't do anything about it. And therein lies, I think, the courage. So, as I said, 
getting that in, then comes the style of leadership where you're able to, let's say, go with a growth mindset, where you want to learn, you want to experiment, you don't believe that the manager should have all the answers. You trust the team to come up with answers, you work together with the team, and that continuous improvement mindset. I don't know if you read uh, Book Mindset, I'm sure you have, yeah? Carol? Carol Dweck. That's it. A wonderful book which encapsulates the entire meaning of great mindsets in a company. If you say culture and mindset, I think her book captures it all. And the good thing about it is she says that it can be changed. It's not character, it's mindset. So in transformations, you have to work, yes, on the structure of work and structure of orgs, but you also have to work on the mindset, the cultural change there. And this has to happen simultaneously. Yes, for sure. It's not two initiatives. No, it's one single initiative. So if you look at what Satya Nadella has done in Microsoft to turn that big ship around fantastically, is work on these things. It's worked on the cultural aspects, had the vulnerability conversations with his leaders, done the hard miles, but also looked at structure, also looked at process, how work is structured, looked at the departments, how were they structured, broke kingdoms up where it was needed. So it's a great journey. These are not easy changes. No. And I always say one thing, Shane, if you want to embark on something like this, it has to be a strategic decision. Now, what I'm finding with a couple of the transformations I'm working with, they do take the strategic decision, but unlike a strategic decision for a product or a market, they make this strategic decision optional. So what happens, people opt out. And then it's, yeah, we're trying this and, you know, we're looking at forming those sort of teams, but, um, you know, we're busy at the moment. And it's allowed to happen. You would not do that with a marketing strategy or with a M&A strategy or with any other strategy. You're not make it optional. So my message to most companies who actually want to change because they need to change is if you decide to go on such a transformational journey, which is painful and uh, big, Make it a strategic choice. Get everybody behind it and then do not make it optional. Try it, experiment and change. That's okay. But just opting out because, you know, it's hard. I don't feel like it. In fact, I had a chat with Amazon the other day, just last week, and the head of Global HR. And what was wonderful to see there is that they said, we believe in not making transformations and M&A is easy. We want to make it hard. And I said, what do you mean? They said, raise the bar, make it so hard that people actually have to push themselves to transform. And then they may slip a little below the bar, but it's still way above success rate. I found that so interesting. A lot of leaders try to make transformations easy because, you know, it's too hard. So take it easy. You know, let's not do it all in one bang. Oh, let's do it, you know, piecemeal. No, go for it. Make it hard. You're here because you're getting paid because it's hard. If it was easy, we may not need you. (laughs) So I think that was a huge eye-opener for me. And Amazon is one of the great companies on the list. And it's important to learn and borrow brilliance. If people want to continue the conversation, where do they find you? Well, I'm on LinkedIn, Phil Abernathy, and my company is called purplecanda.com. I've had it for... 12 years now and before that last 25 so I'm happy to help wherever I can both in terms of just a chat or any other way possible. Cool. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you Shane. All the best.